The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is more about big data. Last week we had a great guest talking about big data, and there's so much going on with big data that I wanted to... In- you know, introduce you to the co-author of this wonderful book, Big Data, A Revolution That Will Transform How We Live, Work, and Think. And today we're going to be speaking with Kenneth Neal Kukier, who is the data editor of The Economist. He writes widely on what is happening in the big data arena. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He writes on technology, business, and economics, and his Articles and columns have appeared in the Foreign Affairs, New York Times, Financial Times, and elsewhere. And he was a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy's School of Government, working on the Internet and international relations. He's also appeared in the Washington Post and many other places. And he is the co-author with Victor Mayer Schoenberger, who we've had on our show a couple times. And I just want to read something about in the back of the book, which is a great book. It just says here, This brilliant book cuts through the mystery and the hype surrounding big data, a must-read for anyone in business, information technology, public policy, intelligence, and medicine, and anyone else who's just plain curious about the future. And this is John Seeley Brown, who was chief scientist at Xerox Corporation. So I want to thank you. I know that um, Ken is on book tour but he is taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us today. So thank you so much, Ken, for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. So we talked a little bit about what big data is. So for those people who didn't listen in last week, could you just kind of repeat what is big data? Sure. So there's no one set definition of this is big data and nothing else can be. It's going to be a fluid term because it's sort of cropped up to meet a to meet the, of the lack of a term uh, in industry to understand what was going on. Generally, it describes the phenomenon, though, and what it describes is that we have more information than ever before, and with it we can do new things that we never could before to improve the way we live, the way we make decisions, the way we understand the world. There are some features of this world, however, of big data that are germane to it, so that the term is just not nothing, that it's not just so vague as to be meaningless. And the first, what we define in the book is more messy and correlations. And the first is that we have more data. It's not that we have um, uh, more data in, uh, in, in absolute terms because we are always uh, collecting, collecting more data. It's that relative to the phenomenon that we're studying, 
there's more. Um, in some instances, we can collect all the data rather than relying on samples. Secondly, because we have so much more data, we can give up our preference for highly curated data sets and accept some messiness. So messiness is part of it. And the third aspect is correlations, where in the, fa- in the past, we have tried to hunt for causality, which is always very difficult to do. Now, for many classes of problems with all of this new data and new techniques, we can uh, simply go with correlations, and that's good enough. So let's talk about what you mean by messiness. Sure. So messy data refers to the idea that we have lots of data from multiple sources or that we have so much data that by collecting it, error is introduced into it, that it can't be quite as clean. So let me give you a sort of example of that. If, we were, uh, if, if 20 years ago we put a sensor at a, in a wine vineyard, we would have maybe three or four sensors throughout the vineyard and they'd be wired together because wireless technology just quite, wasn't quite up to snuff at the time. And we would be collecting may, maybe a reading um, every, uh, what, say, once an hour, okay? And we would use that to make decisions about how much water we would do if we needed to put shade into certain areas, etc. Now with microclimate technology where we're actually looking at the vineyard at, on a per-vine basis, we can imagine a, the same vineyard having um, 600 sensors there. And instead of giving up one uh, piece of data, say, once an hour, you can imagine that every single minute it would be sending off its temperature and its moisture, its water moisture, and, and other variables as well. All of that sounds very interesting, but because it would be flowing through a network at a very high rate, you can imagine that the data might not come in quite as clean and pristine as it would in the past, right? We would have a lot more data, but the data would be, if you will, more probabilistic rather than more exact. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in a small data age, we tried to optimize our tools so that we could privilege exactitude. Accuracy and precision was absolutely essential because we didn't have that much data, we had to make sure that the data that we did collect was as, was, was as clean as possible. However, now that we have, in this instance, I mean, we probably have about four orders of magnitude more volume, right, or more data, a thousand is probably more than that, in fact. Nevertheless, you have so much more data that we can give up this singular devotion to exactitude, and in fact, we can simply learn from the messy data. So messiness in this instance has helped us. We can get more findings out of it. We didn't need exactitude. Right. And then when we kind of look at that, though, in terms of like credit reporting, and and there are so many errors. In fact, they collect so much big data on everybody in this country so that they can establish credit and have credit scores, etc., that that big data, we still want exactitude because it affects people individually. But you're talking about big data when you're basically talking about data that you're not trying to apply to a particular person. Am I correct? Well, uh, I, would, I, would, I would suggest that we need to maybe rethink how we are using data. What you've said isn't incorrect. It's true that in some instances, for example, if it's machine data, it's very easy to understand why we would not necessarily want uh, to privilege the clean data that we can actually live with, messy data, for our findings because that's good enough. That's true. It doesn't have a touch of human hand. The consumer, if you will, is not a human being, but in fact um, probably a sprinkler to add water or not. Right, right. However, in the instance that you're talking about, imagine if we didn't have uh, credit rating in which uh, it was based on, say, 
15 known variables that correlate very highly with uh, whether our ability to repay a loan or not. But in fact, we were using a thousand variables of all different sorts. So our credit rating was in part determined by our, our likes on Facebook, that it was determined on who we were connected to on LinkedIn. It was connected to the sorts of material that we shared on Twitter. Now, some of the data, if you will, might be incorrect. You could imagine, for example, that in a couple instances, we've accidentally retweeted content that we didn't mean to retweet, right, that we meant to, to just sort of go into, meant to favorite, for example. So if you will, the data is wrong. The data is imprecise. Is that a problem? Well, maybe not. If, we have so, if we're now availing ourselves of so much more data, and in particular this new type of variety of data to make these uh, inferences, whether we repay a loan or not, it's still good enough. So although we have messy data, it's still all right. Yeah, I, I, I can understand it in a lot of the, you know, many of the different instances. I think when it comes to specificity of human beings, there's a problem if, if there's something wrong in my credit report and um, I'm, it says that I had a bankruptcy and I never had a bankruptcy, that's going to keep me from getting a home or, or getting a mortgage or getting a loan or going student loans or whatever. So in that instance, that messiness is a real problem. But in... Well, that, but that's true, but that's a, that's a small data world, right, where you have a, a, a handful of known signals, theoretically strong signals, i.e., the, the, a bankruptcy relates directly to your financial poverty. It, we, can, we can presume. It, it's an intuitive thing that we can sort of agree on. Whether how strong it is is open for question. Mm-hmm. But what if I said that instead of having these 15 factors that we're going to determine our credit rating, we're now going to have 1,000. Right. right. And of those, we're going to have 400 strong signals and we're going to have 600 weak signals, all of which are being used to determine our credit rating. So th- th- here's a real story. Zest Finance is a, is a company that's uh, based in L.A., and it does some of the underwriting, well, it does some of the credit scoring for per, in the personal loan, personal finance industry for payday loans. Okay. And so among the things that it found out is that, the pretend, that people's ability to repay is a lot lower if they write in their emails to the company, if they write in all caps or all lower cases. And, the, and a stronger signal that someone's going to repay the loan is that they write in the way that we normally are accustomed to, in which we, the first letter of, of the sentence is capitalized and then the rest are lowercase. Now, there's no causal link between why you should see a, you should correlate the ability to repay a loan between whether you type in all caps or lower cases, but that's one of the factors that they use. Now, it's not the only factor. In fact, it's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the variables in in presumably thousands of different variables that they're looking at as well. But at least it's still there. That's kind of interesting. So here's an example where messy data, where this one data point, it doesn't, you're not going to make your loan or your credit score on this uniquely. However, it's one of the factors. So messiness, in, in a way, is your help to this. Because this doesn't, where bankruptcy rates causally, we can presume, to financial poverty and ability to repay, how you should type should not, theoretically. Right, right. So what is the danger of this predictive behavior? 
Well, the danger of this predictive behavior is the fact that we may be penalizing people for uh, infractions before they've even actually committed the infraction. So you can imagine that the algorithm, it sounds like minority report, of course, uh, right. the idea of pre-crime, and in a way it is. So you can imagine that the algorithm uh, might have me nailed for being a shoplifter prior to me actually being a shoplifter. Now, one intervention by the state could be that there's a knock on the door at midnight by someone jackbooted and say, you know, by the order of the District of Columbia, I, you know, I have to take you to prison for the future crime that you've not committed of shoplifting. Right, right. Um, doesn't sound very fair. On the other hand, what probably is more likely is that I get a knock on the door at midday by a very well-dressed, polite young man or woman who says, hi, I'm from the District of Columbia's social working service. We have you down as likely to shoplift uh, within the next six months or, or 24 months with a 98% to, uh, percent probability. So we would like to help you. We'd like to see what, how we can get you an after-school job. If you're, if you're a high school student, we'd like to see how we can assist you, give you some counseling, etc. Now, this might look like it's a positive intervention, not a negative one, not one that's freedom-denying, but it's still a stigma to me. It still is the state that in the eyes of my parents, in the eyes of my school teachers, in the eyes of my peers, and even my own eyes, right. it acts as, as a punishment, as a stigma that could have negative consequences. So in that sense, it is dangerous for us to uh, penalize people on the basis of a prediction alone. In, in this case, I could easily claim that, A, I uh, will be part of the 2% that will exercise free will and not steal the candy bar from the store. Right. You know, or, B, um, you must let uh, free will play out because if not, I can never disprove that I would not do this. Right. Right. So we, this is a slippery slope. In, in, the, in jurisprudence, we've never had a situation before where we are penalizing people on the basis of a prediction that we, are, we, we may sanction them prior to the act being committed. It's almost axiomatic right. in the world that we've lived in that we've waited for the crime. The crime has to happen for there to be um, a, the, 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 the need for jurisprudence to step in, right? right? Not prior to the crime, although we're moving in that direction. I remember reading, I think it was in the book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, where he talked about predictive behavior on a mosaic as to whether someone would, um, in a domestic violence uh, case, would kill his spouse. And there were several, oh, several different predictive behaviors. If they acted in a certain way, they were more likely to kill their spouse the next time a domestic violence act occurred. So... Um, I remember at that time, I read that just around when O.J. Simpson was going through his trial, and the um, the predictive behavior was he was one that would do that. So it just kind of reminded me of what you were talking about, and it reminded me, of obviously, of Minority Report. But um, I guess the predictive behavior for law enforcement is just to, you know, take more seriously when someone does commit a, a lower crime, a lesser crime, that this might lead to a, a bigger crime. But, uh, well, yeah, interesting stuff. You know, you talk a lot in your book about hidden value of data. Why don't you explain that to us? So the hidden value of data refers to the fact that in the past we've always collected data with its primary use in mind, and, and we still do largely. But the new thing that's happening with big data is that we can unlock uh, insights from the data in a myriad of secondary uses. So 
an example would be uh, Google and uh, this old search query. We have been searching for things with, uh, on Google, and we tend to feel that our interaction with Google is over after we've launched to the website that we've been looking for. Google, of course, stores all of its old search queries. So what they were able to do is to look back and run correlations, massive amounts of, of mathematical models, to see what terms correlate strongest with the spread of the flu down to different regions in the United States. And after crunching through 450 million mathematical models, they came up with 45 search terms that correlated strongest with the spread of the seasonal flu in the U.S. Now, this is quite interesting. The data was generated for one purpose, to get people off to the websites they're looking for, and it's been reused for another, in this case, epidemiology. Uh, the, and the importance here is that in America, the Centers for Disease Control monitors these sorts of things in terms of flu epidemics, flu outbreaks, based on where physical patients are going to physical doctors. And there's a reporting time lag of about two weeks. In America, actually in, with Google Flu Trends, what they were able to do was to find the same degree of specificity of where the outbreaks were, but they could do it in real time. So that's a, a quite interesting thing. And they were to do it not by reported data, but observed behavior in terms of how people searched online, showing that they, you can unlock new value from the data that has been collected for one purpose when we put it towards another purpose. So it looks like that, you know, there's a lot of winners in, in terms of, you know, how society can benefit, right? But what, let's talk about the losers. Sure. Uh, there will be losers. Uh, there always are. Uh, who will these losers be? Well, at the outset, you can imagine that a loser is going to be a company that doesn't have a lot of data and can't get a hold of it. So... Yahoo is an example of a, of a company with a search engine that needs to get data to improve how it handles search and what it delivers. Google is smart not simply because it has a, an algorithm that is very shrewd in ranking and prioritizing the content that you're looking for. One reason it's very good is it learns from the data that it takes in to improve itself. Here's how it works. Imagine if uh, you're looking for a search query and the most relevant page to you is on the eighth link down on that first page. Mm-hmm. And you click on it, and other people click on it, because that's the most relevant page. The algorithm watches that and then knows to move it up higher. So it's the first or second entry when you, do, when you now do a search. If you will, Google has harvested the data exhaust of people. If there's been a recursivity here that you can think of in economic terms. If the value you received from the first page of getting the result was worth a dollar, and you, by signaling what was the most relevant because you've clicked on it and then stayed at it, Google knows if you went back to Google and rerun a similar search, or if you stayed at the page, Google knows that that was more meaningful. The Google algorithm knows to move it up, and now when the next person searches, they get not just one dollar, mythical dollar worth of value, but a dollar and two cents worth of value, mm. right, because, because it's now worth more to them because, the, because the, 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 in, the insightfulness and usefulness of the search uh, query returned to you is smarter. It's moved up the most relevant content. So Google is learning from the data and improving what it's doing. That is one of the reasons why Google is just so good when it performs its searches. Now let's look at Yahoo. If Yahoo's algorithm, just its algorithm, 
were to be as good as Google's, would its search results be as good as Google's? And the answer is no, absolutely not, because Google is smart not only because of its underlying algorithm, but because, which simply ranks, ranks, ranks the pages in relevance, but also because it listens to the data. And Yahoo doesn't have enough data to listen to and make reasonable inferences of what's more meaningful to users than others. Mm. Hence, a loser in this instance is any company that can't collect the data and learn from it. Interesting. And so what about manipulation? What about, uh, you know, the free market? You, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're brilliant with regard to economy. How, how does that affect our economy? Well, when you say manipulation, uh, how people might manipulate the data for their purposes? Um, no, I'm talking about the big, bigger companies would manipulate the data and then shun out any competitors. Okay, so there's almost like a, an antitrust issue yes, of, yeah. um, of market dominance. What, how would that fit in? You know, I think it's a really difficult it's it's a really difficult issue, and anyone who doesn't think so, who comes to an easy answer, doesn't really understand the problem. Right, right. It's it's difficult because on one hand, we are starting to see massive data barons form. I'm thinking of Google. I'm thinking of Amazon. I'm thinking of Facebook companies that really control huge mountains of data that give them an incredible advantage relative to their rivals. That's the first point. But the second point of why it's so tricky is what does scale mean in a world of data when we know that overall the, the amount of data in the world doubles about every three years. Mm. But for certain sub-areas, you can imagine maybe um, information on e-books, it may be doubling every 60 days. Secondly, the relevant marketplace, which is if you were doing an antitrust remedy, an antitrust investigation would be the first thing you'd have to define. The actual relevant marketplace is changing all the time. Right. right? So five years ago, if we were to think about the Internet and the web and what mattered on it and how we were to, and how we were to regulate it, we wouldn't even think of Facebook and Twitter. These things basically didn't exist. But today in 2013, they look like the infrastructure of the Internet. Right? Now, in five years and ten years, will they still be there? We don't know. We do know that when there was a previous uh, antitrust glance by the Federal Communications Commission around the year 2000 for the AOL Time Warner merger, what they did is they imposed a, uh, essentially an, a requirement for interconnection, that's my language, in sort of a telecom policy-like way, for the IM, instant messaging system, of Yahoo!, and of AOL. They didn't want AOL to create their, create their own little sub-network, and it would look like AT&T in 1913. So what they did is they required it because they saw that the world was shifting to, to multimedia. So there, was an ab so there was an abbreviation that the Federal Communication Commission commissioners themselves used in their rulemaking of multimedia instant messaging. Now, that whole technology, it never existed, and it turns out that it didn't exist. We never went into a world of MMIM, Yet, yet the regulators felt the need to act in this way. So when regulators try to predict the future, it's really difficult to do. Um, it's, it, you, often you can't, and particularly it, it, you can't in the time frame that uh, governments have to do to do their, uh, their rulemaking. So I, I think it's a very difficult issue if how we're going to regulate these new data barons. It is true they are becoming dominant, but what the right remedy is is a question mark. 
Now, in the we don't have a lot of time, but I think we have time for you to just expound a little bit on this. At the end of your book, you talk about remedies and you talk about these uh, new this new profession called algorithmists. Tell us a little bit about and how how is that a remedy? Sure. So let's let's look back in time. Uh, at the dawn of the twentieth century, there was an information explosion as well, and the data deluge was financial data. And what emerged from that time was the professionalization of a new class of white-collar laborer. We took the bookkeeper and we turned them into accountants, and we created another layer on top of it for the surveillance function of them called the auditor. And so too, what that did is that gave us transparency, transparency into the financial books of companies, and it was part of the reason why we had such the, gl- the glorious um, explosion of financial capital in the United States and and private sector investing in, in the stock market by individuals. So the corollary in a big data world is the same sort of understanding and transparency for members of society who need to interact with this but can't be considered specialists for it. And so the algorithmist comes in and might be internal to a company who will study it, just like privacy professionals today may review the privacy policy of and the, and the activities of their, of their company and advise their managers, and, and eventually the board of directors on whether this is the right way of going forward or not. So, too, the algorithms internal to the company would do the same thing. They'd be steeped in big data processes, statistics, machine learning. They would scrutinize the quality of the data and the quality of the algorithm and the sensibility of the output. Then you can imagine that you also have algorithms who are external to companies who serve as master of the court, expert witnesses, advisors to government, and who can actually weigh in on the big data analyses as well to see if, it, if it's harming individuals and just see that it's up to snuff. And it allows, if you will, the public interest to gaze into what is otherwise a black box. And so should there be new laws that are created as well to make sure that people are protected from the abuses of big data? Probably. I mean, I, to say new laws, yeah, we're, we're, I mean, in society we're creating new laws all the time because the, the climate of our reality changes. So I don't think there should be any um, skittishness about creating new laws. What we, need, what we need to really understand is that we, ne- we don't necessarily need new principles, right? We need to simply carry forth our values, the values that have guided us so far in our small data era into the big data age. And some of those values are like due process, Right. The process is one, transparency is another, accountability is a third. Um, we have uh, engineered our, our, our judicial system to safeguard uh, procedural fairness. Uh, we need to do the same sort of uh, engineering in a big data world. Terrific. So why don't you give your website, because it's just about time to go, and this is a wonderful book, Big Data, A Revolution That Will Transform How We Live, Work, and Think, by Victor Mayer Schoenberg, and of course, by you, Kenneth Kukier. So why don't you give your website, and then we'll have to go. Yeah, thank you. So readers can learn more about the issue and also get a copy of the book at the website Big Data Book, and that's big-data-book.com. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you again, and keep up the great work, Kenneth. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI, and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. 
The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, that airs every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we're thrilled today to introduce you to Quinn Vong, who's been a deputy sheriff with Orange County Sheriff Department for 13 years. And for the past four years, he was assigned as a school resource officer in the city of Mission Viejo. Thank you so much for joining us, Quinn. Thank you, Mari. Well, you know, kids now are using the media, social media and computers like crazy. So how is technology and social media used by teenagers in a way that gets them in trouble? Well, uh, teens use technology on a daily basis, and they have instant access to each other and instant access to any information at their fingertips. You know, technology can aid them in their daily lives and also create a lot of hindrance. You know, it appears that the, with teens being connected to the cyber world, you know, whether it's through text messages, emails, or tweets, you know, th- they appear to be more disconnected with their interpersonal relationships with those around them. Well, we're going to have you back to talk about what parents and the sheriff can do to help these kids so they don't get in trouble. So thanks. We'll have you back again, Quinn. Thanks. Mm-hmm.